get the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Cause I'm a working man. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, your behind-the-scenes look at Fast Line Media Group and our Fast Line Big Ag and Pink Tractor publications. On this edition, we'll have the second part of my conversation with American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall, as well as farm economist David Widmar. Then we'll take you to the stage of the world-famous Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville, Tennessee, for music from Nashville's rising star, J.D. Shelburne. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Fast Line Fast Track. First up, the American Farm Bureau Federation convention wrapped up January 16th in New Orleans. Prior to the convention, we sat down with Federation President Zippy Duvall for a two-part discussion about some of the pressing issues that will be on the forefront of the organization's 2019 agenda. We covered a number of topics beginning with trade and the involvement of the Trump administration. Well, you know, any, anybody can say anything, and this president talks about agriculture, talks about farmers more than any president in my lifetime. Uh, and, and we all know that the old saying, talk is cheap, but if you look at what has happened around trade with this president, he threatened withdrawal from NAFTA, uh, went into a renegotiation with us saying do no harm to agriculture in it, uh, because NAFTA was very good for agriculture went from $8 billion of trade to, to uh, almost $40 billion and was growing. So um, not only did he not do any harm, he actually uh, went uh, better than what TPP would have done for us uh, in, in, in this uh, new U.S. MCA agreement. So, and he said he would have it done for the, for, before summer was over with. So it was done in August. So everything he said so far, he has delivered. Uh, you know, that old saying that, that I hear the vice president say promises uh, made, promises kept. Uh, as far as trade so far, what he said has is, is happened. So he's saying that they're going to be at the table with China, and they think in the next 90 days they can make a difference. So uh, hopefully he can continue to deliver on what he says uh, he's going to do. So we're very optimistic because of what we've seen happen this last year. we got Korea wrapped up. Uh, he's also sent a letter to Congress to uh, announcing to them that he's going to open up discussions with Japan, the European Union, and the U.K. Uh, that is very encouraging to us. So uh, time will tell, and we'll see if the promises made or he continues to keep them. Now, you mentioned the USMCA agreement with the Mexican and Canadian governments. How do you feel like that's going to uh, have a real tangible impact on, on farm operators in the U.S.? Well, first of all, if uh, if we've done no harm, we were we're in a NAFTA now that uh, that just like I said, went from eight billion to, to almost forty billion and was growing. So, if we do no harm, uh, we know that that we're going to have the same relationship and that'll continue to increase. But we also know that there was some improvements with dairy with Canada. It might not have been as much as we wanted to do, but there are improvements. Uh, the the the, uh, the way they classify grain going into Canada was changed uh, to a positive for us. Uh, some poultry issues with Canada was uh, redone. So uh, we know we know that uh, how we're going to get treated in a new treaty, USMCA, 
is uh, uh, beyond what TPP would have delivered to us from Canada. So. Uh, and beyond what NAFTA is doing. So I think the challenge really is that it is going to be a plus for, for farmers and ranchers, uh, and it will be one that will continue to grow in the future. But the challenge is going to be getting it passed through Congress. Uh, and, you know, the job's not over. There may be an agreement there, but we've got to get Congress to pass it, and that's never an easy chore. And we will play a major role in helping this administration uh, get this uh, USMCA passed. Another thing that's been uh, batted around quite a bit uh, and has become a hot topic over the past year is the uh, hours of service rules for livestock haulers. Uh, wh- where do you see things headed with that? Well, we, we know that there's some bills up there, and we know that uh, Mr. Idaho, I think he's from Alabama, has, has a fix for that. And we're hoping that we're going to be able to get to do something permanent in that because we want to make sure that we keep our, our drivers uh, of the vehicles and the drivers that are on the roads with them safe uh, and also be uh, uh, humane to the animals that we're carrying. So it really is a big issue for us uh, in those two areas. And then it's also an expense issue to our farmers because we know if, it, if the cost goes up because of these ELD uh, mandates that, that the farmer will be the one that ends up having to pay for that. Uh, and so, so th- there is a great need to find a fix to this uh, to make sure that everybody's safe and the animals treated correctly, and we can continue to make a living. And we think that there'll, there'll be a, a, either an extension of what we had, uh, which gives us gives us a, a, an exemption, or we'll find a permanent fix. And we're hoping it's going to be permanent. We're beginning to see some progress. Uh, you were mentioning earlier on broadband internet a- access expansion into rural communities across the country. You feel like enough is being done, and if not, how do we accelerate the pace of those installations nationwide? Well, I think one of the things we've got to do is to identify, uh, to, you know, make sure that the mapping is correct on what coverages the providers really, uh, really are providing out there, and, and make sure that the dollars that are that are, that are being moved into that area, the federal dollars being moved in that area, are going to true areas that aren't served. And and, I, and there are some questions about the mapping of that. So uh, that's one of the areas that we're concerned about. We want to move forward and make sure that the dollars go to the right place uh, and and to bring awareness to, uh, uh, to the people, the providers, of how important it is to get it's not as important to us as to as the dollars are going to make providing it because the usage spreads out so far and wide in rural America. Uh, but the the necessity of having that and being able to be more productive and more efficient on our farms is very very important. So there's an educational thing that we need to do for that. As uh, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, what would you say is the biggest challenge you face in your day to day work? Well, I think uh, probably the biggest challenge we have uh, is, you know, we do we do a really good job uh, uh, of representing our farmers here in Washington. Uh, it's really hard to uh, get our farmers to stop a little while and to be engaged. So, one big part of my job is to encourage our farmers to continue to be engaged and when I I mean that they're they're farm bureau members and they're going to their meetings and they're setting the policies but we need members to make sure that they're uh, they're watching the issues reading our websites reading our economic studies uh, and our market tale uh, that we put out every week 
and make sure that when we call them to action to call up their congressmen and senators about an issue, that they stop long enough and send an email or make a phone call. And, you know, as a farmer myself, I understand how difficult that is. But it's my job to reassure, uh, reassure them to how important it is for us to take time out to do that. The other challenge uh, from my, my position is to make sure that our friends and neighbors that are not in agriculture understand why we do things uh, uh, and what we do, why we do it and how it affects them. Uh, and not just our neighbors, but also the food companies, uh, the uh, fast food providers, uh, to make sure that they don't use marketing schemes just to get ahead of the competitor that's going to put a, un, uh, a very difficult challenge at the farm to be able to deliver that for them. So, And, and all that has to do with antibiotic use. Uh, if people understand how antibiotics are being used on the farm, they may have a different opinion, uh, uh, organic, uh, uh locally grown. All those niche areas are very important to our farmers and ranchers, but we need to make sure that uh, the consumer understands uh, what they're really getting when they buy that and and uh, and the advantages and disadvantages too, because all of them are ne necessary to be able to have a secure food system here in our country. So what would you say brings you your greatest joy and satisfaction as president of the American Farm Bureau Federation? Well, when we can when we can accomplish something that's going to affect their life on the farm uh, to the positive, like tax reform, was positive for our farmers and ranchers. Uh, this uh, farm bill provides five years of certainty to our farmers. It's budget neutral. It uh, provides uh, uh, improved risk management tools. It protects our crop insurance. Uh, much needed funding going to trade promotion areas. Uh, it invests in the future through agricultural research, and it provides more support for beginning farmers. You know, when we're able to be part of, of shaping a policy that affects a farmer on his farm, um, like the new rule it, it, on waters of the U.S., so we had the opportunity to uh, have our seat at the table with EPA along with environmentalists and everyone else to talk about what provides clean water but clear roofs. Uh, when you have those kind of successes, you go home and really feel good that you've made a difference in a farmer's uh, family's life and also make a difference in uh, wonderful people that buy our products across our country, and that's, that's the American people. So with kind of a rough year in 2018 behind us, now we're in the midst of 2019. What, what message do you have as president of the American Farm Bureau Federation for farmers and ranchers across this country to give them optimism as we start out this new year? Well, I, we know here at American Farm Bureau, and I'm a, I'm a farmer myself. We still farm on my farm in Georgia, and my son's a veterinarian, and he runs our farm back there. So I, I go home on the weekend and experience the same problems that our farmers have experienced. And we know how much we want to get 2018 in the rearview mirror, and, and we're, but we're always optimistic. That's what I love about farmers. They're always optimistic about the next calf crop or the next group of chickens that's coming in or the next – uh, crop that they're going to plant this spring, and they're out there right now trying to get their operating loans and get their seed bought and the fertilizer bought. And you know, there's so many challenges that we face. Uh, uh, you know, the, the natural just challenges that we've seen in fires and storms, and 
hurricanes this year. Nothing we can do about that. That's just part of life on the farm. We have to learn how to take them and, and try to get through it and go to the next. But as far as policy, I want to bring some assurance to the farmers and ranchers out there that their American Farm Bureau, their state Farm Bureau, uh, are here to to have their back when they're out there on the farm working and and if they give us the time to give us good clear policy through their policy development process from the counties up we'll promise them that their policies will be carried uh, to the right places to the right tables and that their voice will be heard all across washington and through their state houses because that's what we're established to do 100 years ago that's to be the voice of american farmers and after 100 years, we're just as relevant to our membership today as we were then. What's your vision for the next 100 years? You know, I, I think uh, American farmers is going to play even a bigger role in the next 100 years than we have the last 100 years. The challenges aren't going to get any smaller for for American farmers and ranchers, but the opportunities are so big. And some of those opportunities, we we don't even know what they are yet because they're going to come by way of technologies. Our membership is going to be more involved. They're going to have. They're going to find more value uh, in Farm Bureau as being providing them as a vehicle to make sure that we have sound policy for our farmers and ranchers. I think you're going to see uh, the move to urban areas reverse, and we'll start seeing people move back out into the countryside as we bring more broadband across this country. And we're going to be generating not only uh, agricultural growth, but uh, generating jobs around agricultural growth. And I think you'll see a revitalization of uh, rural America as we move forward. And I think American Farm Bureau will provide that vehicle for those farmers and ranchers to have their voice heard and make sure that we have sound policy for a positive future for agriculture. We've been talking with American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall. Thank you so much for coming on the program, and uh, we hope we can uh, check in with you periodically here to, to, to talk issues and uh, speak directly to the American farmers. I always welcome the opportunity to speak to, to uh, the farmers and ranchers out there. If they're not part of our Farm Bureau family, we invite them. And I also want to say thank you to you and the men and women that do the job that you do, uh, because without you, we would we would not have the opportunity to communicate with the farmers and ranchers. So thank you for what you do each and every day. We're, we're honored to do it, and I can tell you, you have a uh, platform and a forum here anytime you want to come on. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That was American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall. Check back with us throughout the year as we catch up with Zippy to hear his views on the latest in the agriculture industry. Next up, we talk with ag economist David Widmar, co-founder of West Lafayette, Indiana-based Agricultural Economic Insights, who joined us on Fast Line Fast Track to share his outlook for the ag economy in 2019. David, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. Great to join you. Thanks for having me on today. So tell us a little bit about what your organization does and tell us a little bit about how it was founded. Yeah, uh, back in 2014, Dr. Brink, and I were both at Purdue University working with uh, producers and thinking about some of the big issues they faced and challenged. And we recognized there was uh, an opportunity for us to share some content outside of the university channels, outside of the traditional ag media channels, uh, sort of economic perspective of some of the big issues agriculture was facing, and sharing uh, what we call data-driven insights. And so we look at uh, a lot of our posts that we put out there uh, are heavily driven by the data. We look at the data, we put together a graph, and we sort of tell a story 
uh, from that. So back in 2014, we started writing a weekly article. We said we'll uh, write a, a post or an article a week. We'll see how long it goes. And uh, here we are uh, almost five years later, still writing blog posts, still sharing content, and really trying to help uh, those out there who want to think critically about the uncertainties that they or their operation are facing. We want to provide some guidance for them uh, as they think through that. And, uh, you know, we really try to monitor and watch what's going on in the ag economy. We both uh, come from a farm background. Uh, Brent, my business partner, uh, runs his family farm in Grant, Nebraska now. And so we have a, a strong connection to production agriculture, and we try to help tell that story and help uh, those decision makers navigate uh, in light of right now, what is a tough farm economy? Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, you and Brent Gloys uh, shared a blog post on your website, ageconomists.com, that I would ch- uh, encourage everybody to go check out here that shared some of the biggest issues heading into 2019. So uh, and now that we've flipped the page and, and we're here, uh, if we could, let's uh, run through some of those. Uh, t- at the top of your list is uh, Fed decisions loom large. So uh, what can folks be expecting there, and how does it tie to the farm economy? Yeah, there's <clears throat> sort of, uh, we're setting up for some macroeconomic issues. And we talk about macroeconomic means uh, what's going on in the broad U.S. economy and what's going on in the U.S. economy relative to glo- the global economy, the rest of the growing global economy. The first one we have here is the Federal Reserve. A lot of attention in 2018 as the Fed Reserve voted four times to raise interest rates. Uh, and there's been a lot of chatter about that. Has it been too much, too soon? And what are the imp- impacts of that? Of course, higher interest rates mean higher borrowing costs, which impact the operating lines and the cost of production. We're really concerned uh, more so about the impact higher interest rates have on uh, capital assets, specifically farmland values. Higher rates of interest uh, will result in lower asset values across the board, but especially in agriculture, uh, farmland values. And so there'll be a damper uh, damper effect to that. So right now, we don't expect to see a whole lot of that impact. We still have, historically speaking, very low interest rates uh, at the Federal Reserve level, at the farm level. We've seen an uptick. That uptick is not insignificant. But it's been from a very low point, and so far the impacts have been uh, relatively small. So looking to 2019, uh, how many times will the Federal Reserve Bank uh, vote to raise interest rates? Right now they're talking about maybe two, maybe three times. We'll keep an eye on that as the year um, moves forward. And if that isn't enough to worry about, then uh, there is also concern of inflation. Uh, Where where do you see that headed? Right. So, again, these sort of work together. So the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. Uh, and, and one of those mandates is keeping on inflation. It's been seven years, actually, since we saw rates of inflation, annually uh, speaking, exceed 3%. And in fact, you go back to the 1990s to have interest rates above, inflation rates above 4%. So it's been some time before we've had some concerns about inflation. But given historic low uh, unemployment rates and long-term economic expansion, uh, there's been a lot of talk about this. And this is one of the concerns that the Federal Reserve uh, members have expressed when they vote to increase interest rates. And so inflation is going to be something we need to keep an eye on. Uh, it'll help provide guidance as to what the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, what the Reserve Federal Bankers will be thinking about when they vote to make uh, potential rate changes. Mm-hmm. And earlier in the podcast, we heard from American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall, who talked a little bit about the trade 
uh, process with China. How do you see what's going on there uh, in our dealings with the Chinese government affecting what will happen uh, with producers at the local level here in the United States? Right. I mean, this is one of the biggest issues we're facing. And this is the biggest issue we're facing in U.S. agriculture of the last uh, eight to nine months now. It is a complicated uh, situation, and, and that is a, that's an understatement. Uh, and so we have a lot of moving parts, a lot of interests, a lot of um, different factors that need to be uh, kept in mind. What we're watching for in the, next, in the early part of 2019 is what happens as we have negotiations moving towards some sort of meaningful progress that we need to get resolved early uh, in the 2019 as we think about March. Of course, the two leaders met in December between the U.S. and China and outlined this 90-day uh, path to progress. The big question for agriculture is, uh, what does it mean for U.S. ag exports to China? Do we export a little more to China? Do we export a lot more to China? Or, or does the trade talks break apart and we get very uh, little growth in exports to China, maybe zero growth, zero or very little exports in total to China. The deadline is going to be coming up quickly. I believe it will have some impact on commodity prices and that planting decision that producers make early in the spring uh, between soybeans and corn and the other alternatives. And so the trade uh, is coming up soon and it will start to impact 2019 planting decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you bring up a good point there because uh, I, I know as we sit here talking in uh, the middle of January, uh, pe- people are going to have to start making some decisions pretty pretty quickly as far as, uh, you know, ordering seed and uh, other input uh, concerns. Uh, uh, what would your advice be to them? So I think we need to think about it in scenarios. So the first one to look at is if we do not get a trade war, if soybean prices uh, maybe were to fall from where they are today as we start thinking about the budgets, because right now the, the soybean budgets are, are maybe a little more favorable than what we would have initially thought. So think about what is the worst-case scenario for what farmers might plant for soybeans in 2019, uh, sort of what's the minimum number of soybean acres they might plant, and then also thinking about a best-case scenario where um, maybe the trade war resolution uh, gets finalized in the end of February, 1st of March. We might see some positive price movements. Of course, uh, there's some concern about drought in South America right now, which is supportive to the soybean market as well. Right now, we're suggesting sort of thing of what's a, a worst-case scenario on your fewest acres of beans, and then how does that impact the other crops? And on the other side, what if the markets improve? What if there's some improvement from here? What is sort of a best-case scenario? And then that helps them sort of face some of these purchasing decisions, saying, I know I'm going to do at least this, and then I might go up to here as well. Uh, and so because, you know, that trade war talk's probably going to last early in the, the first part of March, and that sort of leaves them a little bit of a window there to, to – finalize those input purchases for 2019. Mm-hmm. And on the blog post, uh, one of the big questions, which I know is probably the $64,000 question on everybody's mind right now, how bad are financial conditions going to get? You know, in 2018, we looked at operating expenses, and we also looked at debt service. Uh, and we looked at operating expenses and debt service as a share of total revenue in 2018. It was 99% of all of our, our revenue. And we still haven't covered family living. We haven't covered taxes. And we haven't covered depreciation. And so there's not enough money at the end of the, the revenue. And so uh, this is leading to a situation where farmers are using more debt to, to bridge the gap. And this is sort of a, a, a very dangerous cycle that we've gotten ourselves into. And so we need to keep watching working capital levels. We need to keep watching debt levels. 
and there's not a whole lot of room for error in 2019. At this point, we haven't seen a large credit problem out there, and that's room for um, that's a, a positive story. But we need to look for profitability in 2019, and if there's an opportunity for profitability to turn around, then some of these financial conditions will start to improve. Mm-hmm. And I think it's no secret that uh, a lot of what is being done here in America these days is being done on credit. Uh, something else that farmers seem to be relying heavily on. Our, our our tax breaks and uh, uh, just different tax programs. What uh, one of the one of the things on the on the blog here is tied to what the tax bill did or didn't deliver. How do you see uh, taxes being favorable or not favorable uh, to the farm economy? You know, this is the first. Uh, this spring will be the first time we filed taxes under the new tax bill. Remember that tax bill that was passed. Uh, at the very end of 2017, that impacted 2018 uh, businesses. Unfortunately for agriculture, there's not going to be as much income out there as you might have hoped. And so maybe some of the elements of this tax bill won't get played out. But this is the first time when I start to, to see the actual workings of this tax bill, both at the business level and at the individual level, start to play out. Uh, it's a different tax bill. There's some different um, rules and different sort of uh, tools to be used. And so there's a lot of uncertainty right now. We're going to start to figure out how that exactly plays out. And so uh, everyone's going to kind of go on this uh, learning experience uh, ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to shift gears a little bit, another point that you guys bring up in, in the blog post is shifting grain stockpiles. Uh, what, what do you think that is going to mean for production uh, headed into 2019? You know, a lot of attention in 2018 focused on soybeans. The big soybean crop, the big soybean ending stocks, and the and the big concerns over exports to China. But in the rest of the grain complex, we have some positive news, and that's worth pointing out. Corn stocks, at least from the latest USDA data, are expected to be lower in twenty uh, for this current marketing year. This 2018-2019 marketing year. The similar story for the wheat situation. We are expecting smaller wheat stocks as we uh, wrap this year up and head into the next production cycle. So uh, decarning stocks for corn and wheat will be a positive story. They will be uh, helpful for those commodity prices, the fundamentals of those commodity prices. And so we want that important to sort of uh, step back and, and step away from that, the, sort of the negativity around soybeans and the, and the very bearish story and soybeans and talk about some of the positive stories and some of the positive improvements as we think about corn and wheat. Mm-hmm. And a couple of big things out of Washington, D.C., uh, one that uh, was just signed last month, the new farm bill. What kind of impact do you see both short-term and long-term for the industry? Well, the short-term piece is that we need to uh, sharpen our pencils and be ready to make another election between that ARC and PLC program. Keep in mind that the programs are going to look pretty similar in how this they feature, but the farm economy has shifted dramatically since we last signed up back in 2014. Uh, so about 90% or actually more than 90% of corn and soybean base acres went into that ARC program last time. We expected a shift, a, probably a pretty big shift, out of ARC into PLC for corn and soybean just because of the dynamics of that program has shifted. So just because the program looks the same doesn't mean the same decision is going to be right for producers given the new farm bill. More long-term, we see uh, there'll be more ARC versus PLC decisions. So we think we know, know based on the law that uh, in 2019, we make a decision for two years, and then 
after that, it becomes an annual decision. So producers are going to get very familiar with the workings of this program. But it's also important to keep in mind, um, you know, how will this program work in light of the farm economy that's ahead of us? And again, the, the start of this program was really back in 2014 when net farm income first came off its peak. And so how will this program work now that we've had uh, five years of low commodity prices and low net farm income? Uh, we need to keep that in mind moving forward. So I know a lot of people left 2018 hanging their heads about the overall farm economy, but uh, from where you sit, what does the big picture look like? I mean, the last two years uh, really have been um, trying to size up um, the supply and demand situation. And, uh, and thinking about that farm economy boom, we had a lot of expansion, we had a lot of uh, increased production, and now we're on the other side of that where we're saying, okay, how do we adjust production now in light of sort of growing inventories and growing stock? Uh, the last few years, we've had five years of big corn and soybean crops in the U.S., big crops globally, um, this trade war, a lot of bad news in the farm economy. And we've been working our way through that. So we want to encourage producers to keep uh, be diligent, keep working on their budgets, keep working on their farm financial statements, keep making updates, keep making adjustments to their operation. But we're also, um, you know, keep in mind that we're looking for some positive stories. Hopefully there's some positive development here in 2019 and beyond. So a resolution, a positive resolution of this trade war would be possible, uh, would be helpful. Um, some uh, weather that might lead to higher commodity prices, maybe some lower national units, higher commodity prices would be beneficial as well. And we're going to keep watching for improvements in the cost structure as well. So, um, you know, it looks like another tough year ahead, uh, but we need to keep our um, attention and focus on working our way through that. And, and one of these years, uh, conditions will start to go in the right way. Well, David, we sure do appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us here on Fast Line Fast Track. And uh, as things unfold in 2019, we'd love to have you back on to uh, to discuss these in greater detail. Sounds good. I appreciate it. And uh, feel free to reach out at any point. And uh, invite anyone to visit our website at AEI.ag. All right. That's David Widmar, co-founder of West Lafayette, Indiana-based Agricultural Economic Insights. And now we head to the Fast Line Fast Track Legends stage at the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee, where we meet up with Kentucky-born and bred J.D. Shelburne, who now calls Nashville home as he's making his way up the country charts with a new album and a new single, One Less Girl. All right, back at Ernest Tubb Record Shop, downtown Nashville, Fast Line Fast Track with J.D. Shelburne. Built as a country rocker, he's open for more than 50 national touring acts, including... Montgomery Gentry, Craig Morgan, Johnny Lee, Steve Warner, Kelly Pickler, Clay Walker, and one of my favorites, Jamie Johnson. Oh, yeah. Man, so what were those experiences like uh, uh, getting to uh, just where you were a few years ago, just picking up a guitar to uh, being on stage with some really huge names? Yeah, you know, it's uh, the openings for these acts is where all the fun is. I mean, like you're, you're playing, you know, festivals, arenas, and, you know, you have their fan base, which is sometimes 15,000 people. Sometimes 20, sometimes five, you know, it just depends. But uh, energy in those places are insane because, you know, they're waiting for the headliner and they're, you know, they're already at their seats for people like me that are just trying to get their name out. And so doing 50 of them has been pretty, pretty awesome. I started out playing uh, guitar in college in a dorm room just to my to my roommate and uh, never thought I'd ever be doing this for a, for a living years later. And, uh, you know, it's uh, 
opening for uh, these acts really helped me get my name out to people that never heard of my name before. Mm-hmm. Who was the first big name you opened for? Uh, first name I ever was uh, first name I opened for probably would have been um, I think John Michael Montgomery. Oh man, opened up for him. Uh, about 2005, I believe, and uh, yeah, he—I mean, gosh, he had hits all over the 90s. That's when you know I was still buying CDs back. You know, your first C- when CDs first came out. I mean, John Michael and Garth and Clint Black were in my CD player all the time, and to open up for him was really neat. You know, he had you know 20 hits, and you know brought a huge crowd, and he's a Kentucky boy as well. What was that feeling like stepping on the stage for that first time and those lights hit you and the butterflies and all that? It's nerve-wracking, man, because you don't realize, a lot of people don't realize this, but when you get on stage in a, in a big arena or a festival or at dark, it's, the spotlights hit you. You see nothing but a, just a black picture. You don't see people. You see the front row, that's about it. And so, you know, you really got to try to take that into perspective because it, you lose your train of thought because you're, like, looking for people and you just see a big black. It's like anybody looking at me, anybody paying attention, you know. And so I've learned how to deal with that as, as I've gone on in my career and, and continued to open for people. Your current album, Tulane Town, is your fourth album. You released your first one, aptly titled J.D. Shelburne. You put a lot of thought into that? <laughs> All night long. <laughs> <laughs> your calling card, and it was a good one. And uh, you've just built on from there. Your new single, One Less Girl, been on rotation, country radio, CMT. And uh, one thing I want to ask you about uh, before that, before you picked up a guitar, uh, which will be a particular interest to our listeners, you, you've got a farming background. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that. You grew up just down the road from Fast Line headquarters. You're in Taylorsville, Kentucky. We're in Buckner, Kentucky. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was that like growing up on the farm there in Taylorsville? I wouldn't change it for the world, man. I, I, was a, you know, I grew up on a farm my whole life. My, my, uh, my grandfather and my grandparents lived on the family farm. I grew, my dad grew up there, his six uh, brothers and sisters all grew up there. And uh, we, uh, we raised tobacco with my family. It was a big tradition. Tradition and and um, we, we worked every summer in tobacco. And once my granddad got a little older, my dad took it over. And so uh, I spent many uh, summers and many nights and Saturday mornings in a tobacco barn, hauling hay, working cows, and driving tractors and backing up wagons and all that stuff. And uh, man, it made me who I am today. I mean, I, you know, I, we think back to, you know, the working on, on the farm with all my friends. And we used to hate working on the farm, man. And no, hardly made, you know, mom, dad, they paid us still, but it wasn't much, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you work for your parents, you just, yeah. you got to do it, you know? And, uh, you know, back then, like we hated farming, but now I look back, I'm like, man, I miss those days. I miss those days of getting a tobacco field in the hot heat of June and July. And, and, uh, that's what I write all my songs about is real life experiences. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of what molded me to be who I am today. And, Sing the songs I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those songs, Farm Boy. Yeah. And to stay uh, true to your roots, you've also given back and uh, performed for the uh, National FFA Convention. I have. I understand you were uh, a Blue Jacket yourself. I sure am, yeah. 1998 Chapter Star Farmer Award recipient, too. <laughs> I forget about those days, man. I, I raised so much tobacco in high school, I, I guess I gave an award for it. <laughs> but uh, I still have my FFA code. I wish I could still fit into it. That's awesome. So, uh your second music video, Hometown, which is a homage to Taylorsville. Yep. Uh, I remember that, that video coming out and everybody in town turning out and uh, just a really cool experience. It landed you on the top spot on CMT, uh, October 2015, beating out uh, the likes of Luke Bryan, Jason Aldean, and Taylor Swift. Yeah, was, man, what was that like? It was crazy, man. I, you know, they, uh, this, the song got uploaded to, was uploaded to CMT, their website, and uh, it, it, it just skyrocketed to the top, and my fans just went crazy over it. And I met a lot of new fans because of 
of that. So it trended number one for several weeks on CMT, uh, which was uh, really neat. It was, it was something for me to add to my promo to try to get, you know, I use that to help leverage to get more gigs in the upcoming year. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, CMT premiered my video, uh, One Less Girl on their network on September the 18th. And so uh, it's just everything's just kind of fell in line at the right time for me. And uh, I've been pretty excited what the videos have done for my career. Music videos, I swear, have helped me more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, just putting a, bringing a song to life and shooting a video for it. It's like people take you more serious with the video. And so I'm going to try to do more of those in, in the 2019 year. And hometown was definitely uh, was a heart tugger for me and growing up in Taylorsville. And uh, I want to go back to where I grew up to shoot the video. And uh, I did that. Unless people think you just picked up a guitar and uh, we're, we're an overnight sensation. You, you really busted your butt down here. Playing right across the street and down the street here on Lower Broad, and uh, tell us what that experience was like. Just uh, gutting it out, trying to, uh, uh, to 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 build that following organically. Yeah, I started playing guitar in college, 2002. My grandmother passed away uh, unexpectedly. Never played any music, sang much at all growing up until then. In 02, I found a guitar in her house after her death. Took it to college with me. Over the next couple of years, just sit in a college dorm room and sit around, played campfires with my friends, and something to do and playing my favorite songs and so that kind of led one thing led to another started playing some gigs and realized I could make a few dollars and get some free food along the way as a broke college kid you know and so that kind of escalated to to getting some paying shows and um, you know 20 shows a year led to 50 then I started getting uh, 60 to 70 and now I'm at 215 (laughs) and uh, I've got a great fan base man I started grassroots I literally started playing uh, bars to four people and two of them were my parents and uh, I just started uh, hustling the road never taking no for an answer I tell you what, being, being from the Louisville area, uh, turning on the, the, the TV every year around Derby time, Kentucky Derby time, there's J.D. Shelburne again, <laughs> man. You become a, a, a celebrity of sorts uh, right up there with Travis Tritt and, uh, and Kix Brooks and Dirk Bentley and some of those guys that have become regulars up there. Kid Rock, you uh, have built your own following there. It's, you've even gotten uh, 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 outfits into the Kentucky Derby Museum on display. Yeah, it's been, it's been crazy, man. I mean, I literally started out playing guitar to, I remember my first time first derby party I played in Barstown, Kentucky this little uh, pig roast and to go from a pig roast to the red carpet into the derby museum is just uh, something you could have never told me I'd ever done and uh, you know what I've just always been humble to people let, no, let people know I appreciate them I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a farm boy at heart that got a guitar and had a dream and uh, you know I tell people all the time like uh, you gotta be in the right place at the right time to, to make it in this business and I've been in that place a dozen times or more and uh the Derby is a great way to meet people from all over the business, and uh, it's just a blast. And we go, we count us in every year. And uh, Lonzo had me back. I'll keep wearing rhinestone coats and <laughs> wearing my cowboy boots on the red carpet for sure. And uh, an all-around good guy. And he was telling me before we got here that uh, uh, something that uh, made it extra special. To tell tell the listeners out there. Uh, uh, what you grew up uh, seeing on your grandfather's coffee table? Uh, Fast Line Farm Magazine, man. It was always on the on the uh, the uh, coffee table growing up at my granddad's house. And uh, man, it's this. And it was even in the uh, in the, the old stripping room back when we re- used to raise it back on the barn on the family farm. And it was like uh, it's just everywhere you looked. And then my dad, he always. I mean, my dad bought tractors out of the magazine several times, and my granddad did too. And so I can't wait to get off this interview and tell him, call my dad and tell him what this interview was for, and uh, put two and two together. It was for Fast Line Magazine, and he'll be tickled to death. Well, that's awesome, man. And I tell you what, you're welcome back to perform on here anytime you want to. You're uh, part of the Fast Line family now. I appreciate so, it, man. We sure do appreciate it. Wish you the best of success. And uh, uh, we'll let you step up to the mic and play now. Sounds good. All right. Thank, thank you. you.
Hey guys, my name is uh, J.D. Shelburne coming to you live from the world famous Ernest Tub Record Shop here in Nashville, Tennessee. Kicking off the Fast Line Fast Track podcast. We're playing songs from my brand new album, Two Lane Town, and telling my story. And uh, looking forward to hanging out with you guys. I'm going to kick it off with a song that uh, kind of is uh, the background of how I got started playing music. I found a guitar when I was in college uh, after the death of my grandmother and I taught myself to play and sing. And once I graduated college and started playing some gigs, I realized the guitar was the only thing I ever really wanted to do. And uh, so hence the reason I wrote this, this song. It's on my brand new album. It's called Born For This. I was born 
this. It's on my brand new record. The song's called Born for This, song that I wrote. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I'm going to take it all, keep it on my record, Tulane Town. This record come out July the 28th. I've been on the road promoting this uh, since July. and uh, it's, been, uh, it's been really great uh, helping us get 215 shows in 2018. I don't plan on slowing down for 2019 with already 40 booked. It's only the 12th. So um, I want to play this next song uh, that I, uh, my, I live right next door to a number one hit songwriter. And he started pitching me some songs. And uh, he pitched me this song uh, last year. It's called One Less Girl. Ended up uh, recording the song and uh, released it as my first debut single to uh, country radio. So right now we have this song on country radio going for ads. The video is also uh, aired on, September, uh, on CMT uh, debut on September the 18th. It's uh, been on there ever since. It's been really exciting for us. And so going into 2019, uh, we're hoping the sky's the limit. The song's on my new record. It's called One Less Girl. bar in this town I go drinking oh, One less beans to watch that red sun sinking oh, One less number in my phone One less way to get back home One less church to go to pray Less is more is what they say Then I got one more almost got one more string of sleepless nights One more tell myself it's gonna be okay One more man what good have been One more why this have to end One more empty bottle in this world Cause of one less girl favorite song that I'll be playing oh, One less I love you that I'll be saying One less pair of blue green eyes One less car parked in my drive One less dance out in the rain If less is more is one they say Then I got one more One more tell myself it's gonna be okay One more man what could have been One more why this have to end One more empty bottle in this world Cause of one less girl That I still want, that I still need That I can't stop thinking back Took my breath, took my heart, I can't live without One more almost got it right One more string of sleepless nights One more tell myself it's gonna be okay 
Songs off my new record, T Lane Town. I was born for this and one less girl. Go download those on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, all that good stuff. All right, that was JD Shelburne. We want to thank JD as well as Zippy Duvall and David Widmar for joining us on this episode of Fast Line Fast Track. We also want to thank you for making us a part of your day. Be sure to join us for the January 30th edition when we'll talk with organizers of the National Farm Machinery Show and the World Ag Expo. And we'll head back to the Fast Line Fast Track Legends stage at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop to hear music from a guy who's taking country music by storm, our buddy Dustin Collins. Be sure to join us and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. Yeah.